can, uh, your smartphone or whatever it is, you can turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, and we're going to read a portion that you read last week with, uh, with David, and um, I think you, you covered part of it, and then we're going to look at another part of it this week. So if you're there, Acts chapter 5, verse 33 to, um, to the end of the chapter is what our text is, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read beginning with verse 27 to give some context. You remember that the apostles had been arrested again for uh, preaching the word of God in the, in the temple area at Jerusalem. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, that is the apostles, they set them before the, the council, that is the Sanhedrin, that was uh, the ruling party of uh, the rulers of, of Jerusalem. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man, Jesus, this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, that is the Sanhedrin who had gathered, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, and let them alone, for if this plan For this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. 
the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and ask you that you would give us understanding of this, your word, and also transform our lives by that understanding. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let me ask you this question to begin with. Where do you grow impatient with God and His plans? Where do you think God should be doing something faster? Because He's promised to do it. You know, why doesn't He go ahead and fulfill His promises? Where do you take things into your own hand and, and, and try to make things happen faster than what God wants them to do? I think you can all think of areas like this. You're not the first ones to take things into your own hand. In fact, I want to draw attention to these two men that Gamaliel points out in his his explanation before the Sanhedrin, before these rulers. He points out these these two men, not really mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. The first one's named Thutis in verse 36. Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and the second one is called Judas, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus or the other Judas who was a faithful uh, disciple of Jesus. These two men were both rebels. They led rebellious charges in Jerusalem or in some part of, uh, of, of Israel that was occupied by Rome because they didn't like that Rome, the world superpower of the time, had control and occupied their country. They ruled their country. They allowed puppet leaders from Jerusalem, from the Jews, to to have some positions of authority. But in reality, the Romans ruled their country. And this stood against God's promises. Because God had promised them that He would free them, that they would have their own land, that they would be blessed, so that they would be a blessing to others. But it wasn't happening on their time. And so they took their own initiative to make sure it happened a little bit sooner. Do you ever take your own initiative to make sure that things happen sooner? We can learn a little bit about these these two men. And I want to explain a little bit. The the first one, Thutis, says claim to be somebody. Now, most likely what that means is that he claimed to be the promised Messiah, the liver that Israel was counting on. Not necessarily, but most likely. He claimed to be that Messiah. And so he had 400 men who rallied around him to try to overthrow the, the government, overthrow the Romans. And he died and that rebellion came to an end. We learn about this second man, Judas, the Galilean. We find out what time in history he came up. The, uh, the census, anybody remember when the census is mentioned in the New Testament? When, when Jesus was born, right? In fact, why did Joseph and Mary have to travel to the town of Bethlehem to be registered? It was for the census that had been uh, initiated by Caesar. Right, the ruler of Rome wanted all the people in all the Roman-controlled lands to be registered. Now, 
you and I think of a census and we think of filling out a form and telling the government where we live and how much money we make and um, maybe how many children we, live, we have. But a census in those days had a much different meaning. See, a, a government didn't take on the expense of running a census unless they planned to get something out of it. And what did they want to get out of it here? They wanted to get more tax revenue. Right? They wanted to make sure that everybody was paying their fair share. This census had more of an IRS kind of connotation than it did a counting the population connotation. Judas didn't like the, the taxation. He didn't like the census much. He thought that those resources would be better spent in overthrowing the government. He put his hope in the financial resources of the people. And he saw if they drained, if the Roman government drained those financial resources, it diminished the hope of the people to overthrow the Romans. And so it, it was reason enough for him to overthrow the government. It doesn't spell that out here, but we learn about that in a history historian named Josephus who wrote about the history of the, Jew, the, of the Jewish people. In a similar way, Thutis, claiming to be somebody, saw his hope in the political influence, in the people of power of the day, and raising up a band. Probably both of them found this. And it's a temptation that has plagued the people of God for all times to, to look to people with power, as we've talked about, especially to have political influence, to look perhaps to military, military might, or to look to financial resources as the way to, you know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, as a way to advance the kingdom of God. Let's say they weren't really trying to advance their own kingdom. They genuinely wanted the kingdom of God to advance, but they wanted it to advance in a time frame that wasn't God's time. And so even though God hadn't called them to lead the people, they took on the responsibility themselves to go ahead and, and lead the charge. I hope by this time that you're starting to identify some places where, where you try to hold on to control, even for good motives, to advance the kingdom of God, to look perhaps to the political systems, perhaps to our influence over various places in government, where we look to the, the, the financial wealth of, of the church or of, of, of ourselves even to advance the kingdom of God, or perhaps to the military might, as, as some have done in the, in, in the past. I don't think we, many of us trust in this as much as, as they have in the past to actually advance the kingdom of God. But all these things come to naught and they, they end with the efforts of men. This is essentially the point that Gamaliel is making. It sounds as if Gamaliel is making an argument that says, just let it happen. If it's of God, it'll succeed. If it's not of God, it'll fail. But if we, if we hear that and we apply that, we, we miss the whole point of what Gamaliel is saying and of what God is telling us 
through the words that Luke has recorded here for history. Gamaliel is not saying, just let it happen. Whatever's of God will happen and whatever's not of God will not happen. People make that abuse all the time. Some people try to say, well, God wills everything and so it doesn't matter what we do. And that's one extreme. And some people say, well, it's, it's all just going to happen and God will work it out in the end. But both of those things miss the point that God is in control And yet he's given us responsibility. Not only responsibility to make decisions, but also responsibility to, to judge well. Do you notice that Gamaliel didn't just say, let what's going to happen happen. Kind of sounds like he did. Read with me in verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this, plan, if this plan or this understanding is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, the first error that I think we're tempted to in this is what I'll call the, the Gamaliel error. And that is... What succeeds must be of God, and what fails must not be of God. Right? That's the, the laissez-faire approach. But Gamaliel wasn't convinced. He wasn't taking the, the laissez-faire approach. He had seen something that had convinced him that this might actually be of God. All right? He had seen something that convinced him that this might actually be of God. I want you to turn back with me to Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. 15. You should recognize this as I start to read it. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. You remember Gamaliel, was he a Sadducee or a Pharisee? He was a Pharisee and a very well-respected Pharisee. He was a leader. Of the... So then the Pharisees went and planned how to entangle him in his talk. This is happening just a few weeks earlier when Jesus was had entered into Jerusalem the week that he was going to die. And so these events and acts are maybe uh, two months at the most later. And the, the Pharisees sent their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians. The Herodians were the ruling party that had been put in place by the Roman emperor. They were, they were Jewish-related and, and they were rulers. And they said, Teacher, we know you are true. And teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? 
Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness is inscribed on this? And I said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Do you notice the difference between Jesus' Jesus's rebellion and that of Judas the Galilean? <coughs> Judas, when he was confronted with the question of taxes, said, we, we aren't going to pay taxes. That's just going to keep them in position of power. Jesus, when it came to taxes, said, I'm not interested in the taxes. I'm interested in your hearts. I'm interested in all of your lives. Because taxes don't have the power to change people. Taxes don't have the power to to actually shape people and to bring them to God. But your hearts and your lives do. Gamaliel probably had heard this report, if not being present, when the Pharisees were questioning Jesus. <coughs> he saw that the nature of Jesus's, Jesus's rebellion was very different than the nature of all the rebels who had come, for, come before him. And Jesus wasn't coming with a sword. Jesus wasn't coming to try to raise up an army. Jesus wasn't coming to try to change the political persuasion in Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't coming to try to collect all the money he could so that he could wage a war against the powers. Jesus was coming to change people's lives. Jesus was coming in a way that was going to change people from the inside. In a way that when he was to die, his movement wouldn't die. But would continue on as he was raised up from the dead and showed himself conquering not only death, sin, but death itself. In fact, this brings us to a second point that is an error that's easy to read into this. We might think that what Gamaliel is saying is don't kill the apostles because because the movement will or will not continue with with them if they're they're dead. What, What Gamaliel is saying is that, look, you've already killed Jesus, right? Judas and Judas were the leaders of these other movements. It's not the apostles that's leading this movement. It's Jesus who's the leader of this movement. You, you've already killed the one. If you just keep killing more and more, you're, you're not going to solve the problem. This is a movement that didn't just die out when its leader died, but instead it's been gaining significant steam along the way, even though you've already killed the ruler.
Where in your life are you trying to take control, maybe financially or with power or with uh, some type of influence where, where God is not giving you that control? Where God may not have given you the resources that you're wanting to do what you think needs to be done. Are you complaining about that? Are you trying to take things into your own hands and figure out a way to go ahead and and advance God's plan a little bit faster than he had? Let me give you an example of what the apostles did that had such a transforming effect, not only on their lives, but on the lives of millions of people ever since then. Throughout history, it continues to impact people. They did two things, verse 41 and 42, that I want to draw your attention to. First, they left the presence of the council, and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. Now, it's easy to read over that and think they just kind of slapped them on the hands and sent them on their way. But most likely what happened to the apostles right here is that they were stripped and received 39 lashes with a whip. Because 40 was the ultimate punishment, and so they didn't do the ultimate punishment, but 39 lashes with a whip, and they walked out of there with their backs swollen, and yet they were able to rejoice. They were able to rejoice in their suffering. How is this possible? I'm going to turn back again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, and read to you these two portions of the Beatitudes that Jesus gave when he was preaching his Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The attitudes are this upside down, crazy, flipped out explanation of who's truly blessed and who's not. You remember these? I taught recently a couple of Bible studies. You've heard what the word blessed really means. It really means it can be translated as this as well happy. So, happy are those who are persecuted. Happy is the poor in spirit. Or Luke even goes so bold as to say, happy are the poor. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are the merciful. Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are the peacemakers, the peacemakers who go through the difficult work of 
bringing reconciliation instead of just faking and acting like there's, there's peace? How can these people be happy? I mean, this is, this is messed up. How can we be happy if we're poor and mourning and meek and, and, and all these things? And here's, here's how we can be happy. Because when we experience these things, we also experience the deep longing, the deep hunger, the hunger that's expressed here when it says, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Notice that it doesn't say even the, the righteous, but those who hunger and thirst for something greater, who hunger and thirst for the actual coming of God's kingdom, who hunger and thirst for for God to make all things right. Because right now we recognize that everything isn't right. We live in the in-between. And the, the dangerous place for us to be is when we are so wealthy that we think we don't have a need for God and we forget it. And we distance ourselves from God. And when we're just happy and nothing bad around us is happening, so we don't have any reason to mourn and we think, oh, I don't need God. And we get further away from God. Or when we're strong and we have the power and influence and we think, I don't need anything from God. Instead of being weak or when we are comfortable and away from any problems and we think that we don't have, we don't need to show mercy because we fool ourselves into thinking that there's nothing, no one that needs to be shown mercy. Or when we imagine that there's actually peace, when there's not actually peace. Now, true happiness comes when we recognize how much more there is supposed to be in life how much pain there is around us in the world. How much suffering is, there is in the world. And so the apostles, when they received this beating, remembered Jesus' words, and they said, happy are we because we are looking forward to the kingdom of God when it comes, instead of trusting the kings on earth now. Happy are we because Jesus promised us that this would come and he's considered us worthy enough to suffer this dishonor. The second thing that they did is that every day, both in public and in private, in the temple, around all the people, and from house to house, they didn't listen to the rulers even after they received this beating, but they continued to teach and preach Jesus as the Christ. Because they knew that their hope wasn't in a dead leader like Thutis or Judas. But their hope was in a leader who had been raised to life. A leader who had shown himself victorious and able to conquer not just the Romans or the Jewish leaders or anybody else, but to conquer death itself and to give them 
hope that they would conquer death themselves as well. That's what we've been seeing in Acts, is that their testimony was that the resurrection really happened. And their lives and their willingness to suffer showed just how deeply they really believed that. There are places in your life where you're trying to change God's plan. And it's not where God's leading you. Look at the example of the apostles. But don't stay there too long. Look at Jesus. Because he's the one who's fulfilled his promises. His promises to them and to you. And given you the ability to endure suffering, to endure poverty, to endure lack of influence among people, to endure whatever God may bring your way. Because when you endure these things, you're reminded of how close you are to the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that like Thutis and Judas, we want to make your kingdom come on our time. We confess that we're impatient with your will and we're dissatisfied and we don't see your kingdom when we suffer. Father, would you let us see Jesus in your kingdom and live with this kind of hope because of the witness of the apostles that's been passed down through the ages. And Father, may that witness that's been passed down through the ages be continued in our lives as we show our lives different than the people around us, just as the apostles did, just as so many people have done through history. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We, uh, we have a, a song of response, and let me invite you to stand, and the song reminds us that uh, Jesus paid it all, that, uh, that his throne is the true throne of the universe, and that we are, we are complete, we're made whole, not by anything that we experience in this life, but by being in his presence and before him throughout all of history. Let's praise him for that.